Good afternoon. This is Trina with Parenting for Liberation. I'm here with Mona Lisa Oluku Diallo, an amazing, powerful, beautiful mother who was born and raised in Baltimore, in outer counties, in an all-white neighborhood. She was married and moved to Europe, and that's where she had her three children. She's also lived in Japan. Also, in terms of her work, she is a paraeducator for Baltimore County, and she's done that for 20 years. She is a proud grandmother of three girls, and she has incredible news that she has baby twin grandchildren on the way. She's so excited. She can tell us all about that. To quote Mona Lisa Oluku, she says, I've made lots of mistakes raising children, but my sole purpose was to raise independent, discerning, loving, competent humans. I realize that mothering is for a lifetime. It requires much skill and devotion. Thank you, Mona Lisa Aluku, for joining us. We want to hear all about those skills and the devotion and how you've lived up to your purpose. And so we're excited to be talking to you this afternoon. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak about something that's imperative to our community and um, to us as mothers as well. Yeah, I'm so glad that you could join me, and I'm so thankful to um, – the six degrees of separation of how I connected with you, I met China Martin, who is one of the editors of Revolutionary Mothering, at a panel here in Los Angeles last month, and she said, oh, you totally need to talk to Luku. She's my friend from Baltimore. She's doing incredible work, and she's an incredible mother, and so I'm just so glad that we could connect, um, and it's been really a joy to get to know you in this short amount of time and looking forward to learning more about you in this call, but also just hopefully this could be a lifelong motherhood, sisterhood circle. Likewise. <laughs> so I um, had a little bit about your bio, but I think no one can tell more about you than you can for yourself. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, your family, where you're from, what do you do? Absolutely. Well, um, as I stated in the bio that I was raised in Baltimore. However, I was um, transplanted from Baltimore City into Baltimore County. And if anyone's familiar with this area, they know that um, the county is like an aspiration for most black people, especially back in the 70s and the 80s. If you were able to make it out into the county, then you uh, basically have um, uplifted yourself. So it was like a badge of honor, especially coming from the civil rights movement. And my parents, good, hardworking people, uh, my father felt as though he wanted us to go to private school. So I did, and we did from, I started in second grade to eighth grade, and it was a school that was an all-white school, and it was fine for my brother. He was an athlete, but for me, I was a little awkward, a little so-called weird, and I wasn't accepted the way that he was. So basically I went through my whole elementary school and junior high school life being called a nigger every single day of my life. And I never told my parents, but I held that deep inside. Um, I never actually told anyone until I got into my adult life. Um, And I always say that that was like the, 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 the thing, that thing that propelled me to understand more about my position in this world or if there was a position in this world, as well as um, I knew what I didn't want my children to go through. So um, I left the country after being married at the age of 18 years old to a service member, 
and he, we were stationed in a place called Torrejon de Ardos, which is in Madrid. And I learned a lot about um, black Africans in the military as well as their place in the world just by observing. And it, it also gave me an education about the world and how I wanted to raise my children. So I had my first child there, and we stayed there for four years. Then we moved to South Carolina, and in South Carolina, I had again um, been faced with racism um, on a grander scale. So all of these experiences, little did I know, formulated what I knew I had to instill in my children to combat. Um, I was, again, a very young mother, so I had a second child in South Carolina. And then um, when, at the age of 26, um, I got a call that my mother had had a sudden stroke and she had died. My mother and I were very, very, very close, and I was devastated. Um, it just so happened that weekend that my mother died, that Monday my um, then-husband was supposed to get a vasectomy, and he had to reschedule. Six days later, I got pregnant. And um, my son's due date, my third child, um, happened to be my mother's birthday. So I had um, my son, but I had this son in Texas, and then we got stationed in Japan. And so I raised, I was raising three children in um, northern Japan with a military member. Um, at that time, I um, started to read a lot of literature about liberation and um, about where my children would fit into the world. Again, I didn't want them to um, go through the things that I did. So I read, the first book I read was Miseducation of a Negro by Carter G. Woodson. It totally changed my perspective on the military and on the way that I wanted to raise my children. My uh, husband didn't agree with that, and we separated, divorced, and I found myself raising my children financially um, and um, later on physically. Um, to fast forward just a little bit, we could talk about the rest in between from 1997 to 2016 currently. Um, just a quick, uh, brief, a brief story about um, my third son, the one that I got pregnant with when my mom had passed. He recently told me that he is having twins. And three days or four days before I found out that he was having twins. I found out that my mother was a twin, and I didn't know it because her mom had um, had died um, during childbirth, and the other twin died with her. So here's my son that would not have been born if he had gotten the vasectomy, number one. Secondly, his due date was on my mother's birthday, and he's having twins. So there is a mystic vibration all through that, and I wanted to say that. So, Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. There's so much in there that I think we could actually spend the whole time just teasing out some of those stories and even ignore the questions that I already emailed you. I just want to first say, like, thank you for sharing and opening up, just giving us so much of you just right off the bat. Just really appreciate that. And thinking about some of your experiences from childhood, 
being raised in Baltimore, which is an urban city, and then the hope and wish and aspiration of many black folks at that time was to move to the county, which I'm assuming is like the suburbs. And, and like, that's the aspiration. And then what the impact of that aspiration is on our children. And so that totally resonates with me. I, I imagine that I'm something like your parents, right? I was born and raised in South Central Los Angeles, which is an urban city. And as I began to raise my son in South Central, I didn't want him to be there. I wanted him to have a more safe environment, more access to resources and things of that nature. So we actually moved to the suburbs. And he hasn't come home and told me that someone's called him a nigger. And that's like my ultimate fear is that something like that will happen or that he'll be stereotyped or that he'll be blamed or judged just because of the color of his skin in ways that his other classmates won't. But he did come home and tell me that he wanted to have white skin when he was in kindergarten. So I appreciate that he and I have the relationship where he can tell me that stuff. But it totally is a heartbreaker and feel like I didn't make the right choice or was that, is this the best choice? And I feel like these choices are so hard to make. And so from your experience of of racism at, at an early age and not wanting that for your children, what did you do differently for your children? Um, what choices did you make to try to make sure that they don't have those experiences of feeling less than or stereotyped um, in all white settings? Well, um, I knew that there was a degree of extra confidence and extra self-esteem. So I, I purposely, it's almost like it was an indoctrination period. Any time I had the chance to give them a teachable moment about the world and racism and what to expect, you know, either if it was a television show, if it was literature, if it was an interaction they had with their friends, I just took every single opportunity I had to give them I, what I felt was that extra confidence. And, and I'm talking particularly about my son. Do you know who you are? You're a king. Do you know what, you, what your potential is? Do you know what you have to come against? kept on instilling that in them over and over and over again from babies because I just felt like my sons, unlike my daughter, I knew my daughter was going to make it. She was going to be fine. But my sons, I felt like I just had to combat the entire world um, for them and give them every scenario possible so that they would be ready, so that they would be ready. As you were saying that, It made me think back to President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, which was about investing in boys and men of color because of some of the the struggles that we know that boys and men of color will face. And at the same time, there were so many activists and feminists and folks who are raising girls and women of color who were saying, what about the girls? That they live side by side in the same households with the boys, and oftentimes they're not considered that they're also struggling. And so folks looked at some of the, the statistics of black girls in school, like they're also more likely to be suspended or expelled or accused of being too angry, too loud, too aggressive. And girls of color also like experience sexual abuse and don't talk about it as much. So I know that there are some ills and impacts on black girls as well. And I think I also sometimes think like, oh, well, my daughter, she's good. She's going to be fine. And she is, right? Like she's thriving. She's doing fine in the ways that I feel like I have to worry about my son a little more. And I also want to challenge myself to be like, why do we think the girls are fine? I don't even know if I have the answer, but I think there's a both and to it. 
So I was just wondering, like, as you raised your daughters and you, you said, like, you didn't have to worry about her as much. What do you think that is? Why don't we think that our girls of color aren't doing as bad? Well, I think because in, in my daughter's case, it was because I know her. And I was able to gauge her fortitude at a much younger age than I was able to do that with my son. So in my statement, I wasn't saying that, you know, our girls don't need it. This particular child <laughs> that I gave birth to, she was born knowing it. She questioned everything. She was challenging. She was, even to a certain point, manipulative. She understood the manipulative power of words. So that was how I gauged her success is my interaction with her. You know, it, it, there appeared to be no fear with, mm. with, this, with, with my particular daughter. I agree with you that oftentimes our girls, in, in terms of initiatives in the nonprofit sector and as well as in our communities, our girls are kind of passed off as they're going to be fine, they're going to be fine. And we, and we know that statistically girls are being incarcerated more often than they had in the past. Girls are getting suspended more often, which compels us to look at not just a, a gender bias situation. This is economic issues, social issues, as well as it's racism and these mechanisms put in place to keep an oppressed society. So I just wanted yeah. to make that clear. Thank you. Um, the question for myself out loud about like, yeah, I do that too. And I don't think that Araya is doing bad. Like, I think she's fine. She is great. And she does ask questions and she is a critical thinker. And so like, it's not a judgment of that. We're not doing a service to, to our daughters and we're just leaving them out and not considering what they need, but like that we actually can do an assessment of them. We're engaging with them. We're seeing how they interact and relate to the world. And so we do know like they're doing okay. If, if I may, I, I also have to say, I think that it's easier for us as um, women that decide to, to live in a female body and to be in a female world um, or to consider ourselves female. Um, when we have another female, it's a more familiar gaze. I think that we're more in tune, or I'll, I'll say not we, I was. I was more in tune with her because of me being a woman. Does that make sense? It does, and it kind of brings me to another question, because I know after you separated from your husband, you were raising two boys and one daughter um, on your own. And so when you say things like you were more attuned with your daughter and you, you could engage with her, engage her accomplishments or success or pathway because of your own lived experience as, an, as a female, how did you do that with your boys and what things did you put in place? What were your strategies in order to raise them without having the same gauge of them as a woman? Um, I felt like I was always in teaching mode with my son. It was like I was a parent, but I, my main objective for them was constantly to give them all the teaching that I could before they walked out of the house. And I felt like I was in, it was almost like this mad rush to make sure, did you read Malcolm X? Did you see the movie? Did you check this out? What do you think about this? Um, listen to this song. Nas is saying this. What do you think about that? It was just total indoctrination of me just like pushing the agenda, like this is, you got to know this, baby. You got to know this. The world is, it sees you as an enemy. And um, it was fear. A lot of it was very fear-based. 
And one son took it, and he kind of internalized the fear. And he's more bitter than my other son. He internalized the fear and turned it into something even more positive. But I think my youngest son internalized it, and he's very, very angry at the system. But it's an anger where he doesn't feel that anything he says or anything he does is going to change anybody. And my middle son, where he feels that I can change it, I can do this, I got it, and I'm going to make a difference. So as mothers raising our sons, it would behoove us to be very aware of how we're delivering the information. Because it is some of it is here because we don't want anything to happen to our sons. But to be very, very careful about the verbiage that we use and allowing them to see so much of the fear. Don't let that just totally guide you. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. You are preaching to me right now. That's the reason why I even started this podcast. And I, like, realized that I was parenting from fear. And I realized my son was starting to internalize it. Because he was worried about stuff that I was like, why are you worried about that? You're only five or six. And I was like, oh, that's me. I'm creating the fear, the worry, the anxiety, because I'm holding it so tightly. And there were times that he would resist, right? He'd be like, why? That's not a big deal. Why are you worried about that? And he would help me to check, like, oh, why am I worried about that? And it's something so much bigger than what his mind can hold right now. Like, I'm worried about systemic racism. I'm worried about systemic oppression. I'm worried about, you know, the institution of education and how it's created to be a a school-to-prison pipeline for boys of color. It's not created to be a school-to-college pipeline, right? Like, I know the intentional structures that are there, I can see all the booby traps, and I'm trying to guide him away from them, but doing it from a place of fear. And so I made a commitment to shift my orientation from parenting from fear to parenting to liberate, so parenting for liberation. And in that, I hear what you're saying in terms of the caution around not letting the fear guide us so much because our children will internalize the fear and either become resigned and think that there's nothing we can do about it. It's just there. The system's flawed. It's intentionally set up against me. I'm angry at it, and I there's nothing I can do. And then there's some children, like your second son, who seems to have internalized it and was like, but there's something I can do about it, and has a sense of agency, the commitment to dismantle that system. And, and so when I think about parenting for liberation, it's how your second son or your middle son internalized it. When we parent for liberation, it's about not necessarily pretending that the world is great and that the systems aren't there to, to, to set them up. It's about giving them that knowledge, raising their awareness and consciousness, but also being liberated within those structures that this is set up for you to fail and you can still thrive. And here are some tools. The raising the consciousness is not just to be like, it's there, be afraid of it. It's actually like, it's there and what can we do about it? It's there, and how can we go around it? So I think how your second son internalized it is what my hopes are for this podcast, for my parenting style overall, and for all of us who are raising children of color with all of these systemic oppressions, that that liberation is not only the destination, right? We want to get to a place of liberation, but it's also our way of engaging with the world. How can we be liberated and free, knowing that there are structures and barriers put in place, but how can we still move freely without fear, but be knowledgeable? Uh, my son Paul, my second child, and my oldest son. He was in third grade, and I got a call from the principal. 
saying that he was being insubordinate and they didn't tell me what he did, but he's like, you know, he's being insubordinate and, you know, we really need to talk to him. And I said, I'll be right there. So I came in and they said, you know, he was supposed to sing a song in music class and he refused to sing the song. And he said, I'm not singing that song. And he got loud and the whole bit. And I said, well, what song was it? He said, mommy, it was called Pick a Bale of Cotton. And I don't want to sing that song. I know that that's not a good song. And I said, absolutely, definitely, you're not going to sing that song, son. So I kind of got a smile on my face because he knew in third grade that that was a place and that was a very sore wound that was a historical wound. And he didn't want to be a part of it, and he was not going to allow them to force him to sing that song. And he he put his foot down. He said, Mommy, I'm not going to do it in third grade. And I was so incredibly proud of him. And likewise, my youngest son, when he was in sixth grade, a young student in this classroom, he was spitting spitballs. He told me the whole story, and he said, I turned around to him, and I said to him, if one of those spitballs lands on me, I'm going to hurt you. (laughs) And he said, you know, that is the lowest form of disrespect. And he said, the young boy called him a nigga and put the spitball on him, and my youngest son, sixth grade, commenced to beat him down. Um, The student, that was the only time he had ever been in a fight in school, ever to my knowledge, you know, I had to sit him down. And his take on all of what I was teaching him was just straight anger. Like, I want to get back at these structures. I want to get back at these people and and these people that that constantly have done things to me, to my family, to my ancestors. So I think that there is a place for that. I'm not condoning violence, but Pego Vera said that a carefully aimed bullet is much more effective than a march. So that, the idea of liberation can be multi-leveled. You know, we need the young men like my son, Paul. And then we also may need like my son, Dyson. So when we are teaching our sons about liberation, understand they may take it as it's not just a peaceful thing. Because they're dealing with a world that's not peaceful to them, to the 10th power, but what we see. Because we as women, although it is rough out here for mothers, it's rough out here for us. These young young boys, especially in Baltimore, every time they walk out the door, they have the police to think about. They have people in the neighborhood. They have people that think that they may look like somebody else. And they have weapons and constant, constant struggle as soon as they walk out of a safe place. And it's important to give them the information that they need, how to detract that kind of energy, how to um, be aware of your surroundings, and how to not internalize it so much that you lose effectiveness. You lose the effectiveness of what you, you need to do in the community. One thing that I always told all my children, you know, in terms of a job or the way that they decide to make their money, as long as the foundation of it is community. What are you giving back? What are you doing for the community? If it's not doing something for the community, then it ain't worth it. I like that commitment to the community. 
I really appreciate you talking a little bit about Dyson and Paul. Both of their responses to the system, just as I was hearing it, I was like, those are some of the various types of masculinities that we see. And thinking about black masculinity, it's often portrayed as this like stoic, tough, non-sentimental, crying as a weakness that is not acceptable. Like you have to be strong, dominant, hold it together. I totally want to raise my son to be someone who can have a range of emotions, who can emote feeling that doesn't only have to show up in, in the form of anger. And, and it kind of leads me to this other question that I had, and it, it reminds me of this article I just read recently about, is it okay for boys to cry? What do you think? I don't know if you had a chance to look at that article or not. Um, the article for folks who are listening is on NPR's website, and it's called, Is It Okay for Boys to Cry? So what do you think about that as we talk about masculinities and responses to systemic oppression? Well, I think that the mistake that I made was to give my children, my boys especially, a pre-described definition of what I felt masculinity should be. That, you know, when we say, you know, it's okay for you to cry, but understand that the way that they decide to cry may not be the way that I think they should cry and respecting that. And I didn't learn that until later when I got into, I've been in a relationship with a man for four years now and he showed me so much. And he said, yeah, I, I cry, but not everybody cries tears. And that really resonated with me. So I decided that I had to apologize to them when they got older. You know, I apologized for placing my expectations of what I felt this is what masculinity should look like and and uh, impose that on them. I think that once you give your, your boys a foundation of love, knowing how to be compassionate, showing them, actually showing them in, in cases like here at the grocery store and there's, an elder that may have a couple of bags, you can say to them a, a way to be compassionate right now would be maybe to go over there and ask if he can carry a bag for her. And like giving them prompts to show up for compassion, to show up for, for empathy. And if you constantly do that, I think that when they get to the point where they're um, able to spend more time away from you, they will show up that compassion will show up. And even the ability for them to cry in their own language will come through because they'll feel comfortable in their own skin. So if this is a time for them to show a tear, they'll show it. If this is a time for them to to cry in another language, they can do that, you know. But for them to be comfortable in making decisions as to how they're going to show their emotions or not show their emotions, So I think that oftentimes mothers say, you know, mothers in liberating the minds of our our young sons, you know, we're like, yeah, it's okay for you to do this. You can do this. You can be this. You can be that. You can be this. And having our own, again, pre-prescribed way. And um, if we just give them the, the foundation of compassion and the foundation of empathy, I think that they'll be able to find their own voice. That is really helpful. You gave a great tip right there. So folks who are listening. I would recommend creating opportunities for them to show up, creating opportunities for them to show compassion or to be empathetic. And so setting the foundation and then 
calling them into that in live moments. And I think the example of the grocery store is a great one. Just the other day, we were in the pool, and he's such a great swimmer. He, he likes to say, Mom, I'm like a fish. I'm like, yeah, you're like a fish. You can swim better than Mommy. Um, and so there was a mom in the pool, and she had a small, like, infant child that she was um, having in the pool. And then her toddler daughter was swimming around with floaties. And because the mom had the infant, she was staying in the shallow end, but the her daughter was like, you know, floating past the line. And the mother had said, you know, this is the line, like, don't go past the line. And Terrence was being like junior lifeguard. Like, he'd see the little girl floating past the line, and he'd go like, all right, hold out your hand, I'm going to bring you back, coming out of the deep end to, like, bring her back to her mother, to help her mother out, because, you know, the mother had the small child. And, And I hear those stories. I hear other people saying that about Terrence all the time. Like, he's so sweet, he's so kind, and so... I do believe that he has that foundation and that he's showing up without even me asking him to. And so it's it's good to hear you say, like, these are the ways that we can help build that because I'm noticing that he's doing that on his own. And so just really grateful for him. And um, I've witnessed my son actually, both of them, actually take that same approach in their inner circles of their brother friends. My bedroom was kind of right next to their bedroom. And and so I heard conversations when they were on the phone sometimes. I heard conversations with some of their buddies that would come over and play games with them. And I could hear them having conversations about their mother or their father. My son was like, well, man, you know, this is what you have to do. You have to, you have to do such and such. You have to do this and this. So it's not even like just in service of what we feel the community is. They have their own community. And to to be able to voice it in their own communities with their own brotherhoods or friends, that's when you can really, if you have to gauge or evaluate what more you have to give them by, by listening to them, not eyeing on it, but <laughs> listening to them in, that, in the context of um, how they treat and how they react to um, their inner circle as well. Yeah, it's so incredible moment when you actually aren't instructing and you see your children living into the values or being liberated, practicing liberation in their way of being and also just being liberated as they as they move. Yes, and I also, I mean, we're talking about like the underlying that of being compassionate, being empathetic, and how that is the greatest. But there are some also there are also some um, concrete things I would like to add. Like I put books in front of my son that I thought were necessities. They had to read Malcolm X books. They had to read um, Miseducation of the Negro. They had to read about Huey Newton. They had to understand the latter part of uh, Martin Luther King's years and his struggle against poverty and the assassination of Medgar Evers and all of what he stood for as well as internationally. And I have to make this a point. Most of us that are raising um, black sons, the context in which we raise them is just basically either in their hood, in their state, or in this country. Sometimes there's a short-sightedness that these young men also have the ability to affect the globe. So it's important for them, in my opinion, to learn another language, learn it fluently. It opens up the door, especially in terms of the African diaspora. They're able to go to 
Colombia, Central America, where there are other indigenous as well as African, what they call themselves Afro-Latino communities that they can connect with for them to learn uh, as much as possible about the great continent of Africa in not just West Africa, but East Africa, Central Africa, so they can understand trade, so they can understand their, their legacy of decision-making and of building nations, for them to watch the news with me in the morning and for us to make critical analysis. And you can do that at five and six years old. Well, what do you think? How do you feel about that? What does that make you feel like? You know, and then work your way up to even policies when you're in 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. How is this policy going to affect you? How is Donald Trump becoming a president going to affect you in South Central? Los Angeles? How is this election going to affect you? What do you think? Instead of just giving them the answers, what do you think about how this is going to affect you? So it places them in an international, national line. It places them right there. So they're able to articulate those thoughts to their inner circle as well as be comfortable to articulate those thoughts to, to the rest of the society. Those are great tips. I mean, all of the books that you listed, I'm going to get all those downloaded on the iPad, and when we're ready to start reading at that level, we will. We're at seven years old right now, but we are we are reading some of those folks, but, you know, the child version of those folks. But I think, you, you know, you gave incredibly helpful tips for how you've engaged your children, identifying black leaders nationally and also internationally and learning about the African diaspora learning different languages and how there's folks of African descent in other countries that they can go to across the diaspora, um, learning about trade and decision-making and just learning their, their, their ancestral knowledge. That was a, one of the key strategies of the, the transatlantic slave trade was to separate us and sever our roots and connections to our homeland. And so I actually recently went back to, to for South Africa, and it was just like such a visceral like connection that I could see myself in other people there, in the ways of being, and the way that we you know exchange, and the way that we dialogue, and the way that we celebrate. There was just so much familiarity that although the roots have been severed, that they are so deep seated that there's so much connection that's there and possible. And so my ultimate goal is to be able to take my children there. Sure, there are some like pilgrimage programs or some like rites of passage programs for young children of African descent to be able to go back. And if we yeah. can't do that, what can we do at home? What can we be doing to bring our kids into connection with their ancestral heritage, even reminds, here in the States. It reminds me of a story that I heard from a woman here in Baltimore. She said she made an agreement with her sons not to have cable for a year. She said her cable bill was like two fifty, three hundred dollars a month, something ridiculous. But to save that money and if they could save all of that money, she would match it and she would take them out of the country. And I realized when I traveled, very rarely see any presence of African American boys. I would see African American women occasionally in some places. Definitely African-American men, especially in places like Colombia and Dominican Republic and Brazil. But I did not see families traveling together. And um, my sons have kind of traveled all over the world. My youngest son has been in South Africa. He was 15 years old when he went. He came back with a very interesting perspective. And my daughter, she went to college in West Africa, in Ghana, and she came back with a very enlightened approach on life. So... I would say to parents, 
please be compelled to take your children and show them and travel. If you celebrate the holiday, make that a gift and an experience, you know, because I, I know some parents that are like, you know, I got to get this iPod or I have to make sure that they have the latest this. There is nothing, in my opinion, that can ever surpass great experiences, giving your children great experiences. So if that is possible for you to, to take your children out of the country and not just a retreat on a beach, but to actually see how other people live, to have conversations with mothers there, with um, the children, to marginalize and disenfranchise communities in places that are tourist hubs. Like in Jamaica, I know the first time I went to Jamaica, I stayed in the hills with a family, a host family. And every morning about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, there were children that had to fill their buckets up with water to take walk um, back home so they could wash themselves and get ready for the morning. And I said, well, why is it the water isn't working? And it's like, oh, because all the water goes to the tourist area, and we get water intermittently. We don't get water all the time because the water has to go to the tourist. So you have people that go to these resorts, and they have can turn on it, and they have water, and they have everything, and there are other communities that are suffering. Um, I just wanted to make that clear. Thank you so much. My My husband is from Jamaica, Kingston to be exact, and so we talk about going back there, and I'm glad you made that connection to capitalism, imperialism, tourism does to other countries um, so extracting, you know, like taking away, and I think as we're trying to raise our children to be aware and liberated, how do they make connections to their local and national choices that they do at home and how it impacts other countries move and act locally, but think globally about our impact elsewhere. So I think I appreciate you bringing that in. I mean, I think I also want to hold for, for folks who might be listening who has never traveled themselves, right? Like they're, I know I'm the first one in my family to have the opportunity to travel internationally, and that's mostly because of work, you know, like just resource-wise, access-wise. And I think it's helpful for you to give an example. Sometimes we think that we don't have access or resources to do it. Oh, I can't afford it. It's expensive. But then when you make those connections to, like, actually, if we didn't have cable for a year, what would be possible? If we didn't buy the latest tennis shoe or the latest gadget, that there are ways that we could provide our children with lifelong experiences versus temporary toys or items or gadgets. Just wanted to hold all the like different ranges of, of experiences of folks who might be listening and think about alternatives. In, in doing that, it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't make the association impactful or, or learn from your direct community as well because anytime you have an urban city, you also have not just black people but brown people. You have people that speak another language right in front of us. Uh, there, there are a lot of skills that we can teach in our neighborhoods as well. Um, I know for my children, every two, I got paid every two weeks. So every two weeks I would go into a restaurant that was not um, pizza or not a typical restaurant. I would go into Senegalese restaurants, Ethiopian restaurants, and we would – have a day that that's what we did. We went into that Ethiopia restaurant. We learned about Ethiopia. We learned about Senegal, where it is, what kind of food they eat, the people, what kind of language they speak. 
you know, and you can do that as a parent in urban areas, and it really doesn't cost that much to do that, and you can actually take them on a, a field trip. <laughs> you can take our children on, your children on a field trip and expose them so that when they get older, they feel very comfortable. They walk into a place with much more confidence and ability to speak on something. It just gives them more understanding, and, and that understanding can, can transfer into confidence. As someone who is traveling more as an adult that I didn't have experiences traveling as a young person, I do find myself like, I don't know what Turkish food is, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't, can someone help me order off this Lebanese menu? And so what are the experiences that we can create in our day-to-day to broaden their perspective, broaden their horizon, to learn about other cultures and other folks' experiences and languages and traditions and meals? And how do we get them to explore that? Even if you can't go to those countries, how can they begin to explore that locally at home? So I think that's a great tip. I know I'm going to be doing that with my son now, so I really appreciate that. I feel like I can learn so much from you and keep talking, and we can probably talk all day, and we should probably do this again. I just wanted to um, close with a question around Parents and for Liberation and get a sense from you. What does Parents and for Liberation mean to you? What does it look like, feel like, sound like? Well, when I think of the word to liberate, for me, it's to take me out of a mindset, me and mine out of a mindset, which is destructive to um, the growth of our communities and our people. And in that, the the biggest battle is public school systems. So a part of what what liberation looks like in terms of raising um, children in that attend the public school system is giving them the tools that they need to discern the information that they're going to get from these schools every single day for six hours a day. It can start with mathematics, the understanding math and where it comes from. Why do you need to learn it? How is this going to help you and your community in the future? And the social studies curriculum, you know, you have an emphasis on all of history, and then one month you have what's called Black History Month. And when your child comes home with a social studies or history curriculum, they come home with the, the worksheet, and they come home with all of ask them, what did you learn today? And if they say, you know, well, Mom, we learned about the bosses. So you have information that talks about the indigenous population during that time in, in Boston. Where were they? They weren't invisible people. Ask questions. You bring out information to your children about the indigenous people of that land in Boston during that time. What were Africans doing at that time? What was the implications of the colonial separation to Africans at that time? What was happening in terms of their community at that time? So those curriculums are not going to do that. They don't. I, I don't. I've never seen a curriculum in, in, in public schools that has anything similar to that. So as a parent, a part of liberating and liberating their educational experience so that when they're out of the public school system, it has not blanketed their knowledge, kept it oppressed. So if I were to say one specific thing, is to ask your children about the curriculum, know the curriculum, ask them what they're asking in the classroom, be able to have information about the experience of the people that look like them during that same time, juxtapose all the information and have them come up with their conclusions and have conversations about it. 
That's really helpful because when Terrence entered kindergarten, I actually started to volunteer at his school one day a week in his classroom because I started to realize really early on that there was a huge chunk missing and I needed to be witness in the classroom. And I also needed to learn what they were learning in the classroom and try to supplement it at home. But also I needed the students and the teacher and the school staff and personnel and the principal to know that I was a black mother who was invested in my child and that they need to do right by not only my son, but by all the kids. They're like, there's someone watching you. There's someone here that's going to hold you accountable. And so that's my commitment to my son's education. And so I know you're an educator, a parent educator for where you were for 20 years in, the, in, in Baltimore. So I know that you know what you're talking about. We have to hold these folks accountable and we have to supplement the curriculum that they're getting in class because it's not given the full history. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And to have a child, if you think about it, to have a child in a classroom for 13 years and for six hours a day, that's indoctrination. And um, if you do not have that child come home and discuss these things with you and you do not discuss it with them, unfortunately, we find ourselves in the, in the predicament that we are now, a group of children that have no clue who they are, where they're going, or what they're about. Mm. Thank you so much. We will continue these conversations. And if I could get you to conclude with just a one sentence, Parenting for Liberation to me is... Parenting for liberation to me is equipping your child with the information, knowledge, spiritual knowledge, social knowledge, financial knowledge, global knowledge of where they are and what they have to do in order to elevate themselves and their community to the next level. Done. Thank you so much for your time. I know you wanted to say more. <laughs> um, for next time. How about that? The next time. For next time.